The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and around and round, and it has thrills and chills, and it's very brightly colored, and it's very loud, and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to question, is this real? Or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. Controversial, outrageous, and a true original, Bill Hicks is still revered even 27 years after his death. Still shocking after 27 years. A comedian who did not care about the laughs as much as he did about making people think and care about what was going on in the world around them. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, comedians, and playing from your heart. I am your host, Jason Moore Harden, and today we are exploring the life and comedy stylings of Bill Hicks. If you want to understand a society, take a good look at the drugs it uses. And what can this tell you about American culture? Well, look at the drugs we use. Except for pharmaceutical poison, there are essentially only two drugs that Western civilization tolerates. Caffeine, from Monday to Friday to energize you enough to make you a productive member of society, and alcohol from Friday to Monday to keep you too stupid to figure out the prison that you are living in. End quote. William Melvin Hicks was born the third child to Jim and Mary Hicks on December 16, 1961, in Valdosta, Georgia. His name would become a staple of his act when he began performing. He would introduce himself saying, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is William Melvin Hicks and then add, thanks, Dad. <laughs> he hated the Southern legacy his name represented, the segregation, the lynchings, the violence, and the ignorance. It was exactly what he would later mock, the lumbering, stupidly cruel Ku Klux Klan South. Despite his shame, growing up he did find joy and pride in certain Southern aspects. Mark Twain and Elvis were particular favorites. He read every word Mark Twain ever wrote, including the adventures of Huckleberry Finn about 25 times. And from age five, all Bill wanted for Christmas and birthdays was Elvis records. This would be the start of a lifelong love for music. Between listening to music, which included Jimi Hendrix, Kiss, and Rory Gallagher as he grew older, his love for reading also escalated. His room overflowed with Danny Dunn and the Hardy Boys mysteries, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, and, of course, Mark Twain books. In his teens, living in Houston, Texas, where the family had moved when Bill was seven, he was a very talented athlete, particularly 
baseball. So noticeable was his talent that many of his peers thought he would go on to earn a baseball scholarship and even go on to the major leagues, if he wanted to. But that was the question. What did Bill Hicks want? If he wanted to, he would have been able to fit in, but he was either unable to identify with most or simply just did not want to. Either way, it left him feeling like an alien. This is how he felt about nearly everyone, including his family, everyone except his best friend, Dwight Haldon Slade. They met in the seventh grade during a neighborhood game of commando tag, and it didn't take long before they were making each other laugh and spending most waking moments together. When Dwight revealed to Bill that he had aspirations of becoming an actor, and Bill told Dwight that he had been writing jokes, things seemed to align for the duo. From that point on, they were partners as well as best friends. Another turning point was when he received a black and white television for his room from his parents. Until then, he had primarily only known about Johnny Carson and Bob Hope. But now, with his own TV set, he would stay up way past his bedtime and watch The Tonight Show, where he would be introduced to the comedy stylings of George Miller, Freddie Prince, Steve Landsberg, and Robert Klein. Hicks would memorize their routines and entertain friends at school. He would buy some books on stand-up comedy, trying to comprehend the art. He was fascinated by it, and in particular, about his hero, Woody Allen. Unfortunately, his mother wouldn't allow Bill to buy Woody Allen's book without feathers, because one of the chapters was called The Whore of Mensa. Bill and Dwight would listen to Woody Allen's act until they could say all the lines along with him, and it wasn't long before they began writing jokes together. This was followed by establishing themselves as a comedy team. They went by Mel and Hal, which were shortened versions of their middle names and would perform their various acts for friends. Dwight would introduce Bill to spirituality at an early age and it would remain a vital element throughout his life. When both were 15 years old, working at a Wendy's fast food restaurant, Dwight on one particular day told Bill that he had figured out that they had lived a prior life. Intrigued, Bill had further questions. Dwight told him that everything was pre-planned, that before one is born you plan out your life much like the screenplay for a movie, arranging characters and scenarios to best help your evolution. Each life is a gift, and you live them one at a time, like the beads on a necklace, growing and evolving, experiencing a multitude of lives, genders, and cultures in a quest for enlightenment. Bill immediately understood. He felt that this reaffirmed the theory that he was on Earth for a reason. It also let him know that there was a reason that the stereotypical suburban life of getting married, buying a house, having children, and a golden retriever named Rex did not make sense to him. He told Dwight that they were destined to meet and destined to be comics. In February of 1978, they came across an ad for the brand new comedy workshop that was doing open mic nights on Mondays and Tuesdays in Houston. 
The boys immediately jumped at the opportunity, and despite being too young to drive, let alone drink yet, they were given a chance. Being young proved to be a strength because by telling jokes of a sexual nature, although clean ones, they charmed the adult audience and received a wave of laughs and praise, just what they needed to keep on pushing. Unfortunately, the act would be short-lived as Dwight's family was set to move, and after a mere three performances, the duo walked off the stage for the last time on June 5, 1978. Bill just could not imagine doing their routine alone, though he would soon return to the stage with fresh material of his own. By 1979, he was doing regular sets at a club called The Annex and hanging out with other comedians in the green room. The other guys were drinking and smoking, but Hicks, on the other hand, couldn't fathom why anyone would do such things to themselves at the time. Despite his straight-edge attitude, Hicks was more than welcome to hang out. Everybody saw an unmatched talent in him. They knew that there was something genius in him, despite his age. It wouldn't take long before Bill came to understand that his career wouldn't match his aspirations if he remained in Houston. In his mind, Los Angeles was the place to be. After approaching his parents and managing to convince them, they decided to think of L.A. as Bill's comedy college. They offered to pay for a studio apartment for him, and his father even bought Bill a white Chevy Chevette that would be ready for him when he arrived in L.A. Upon arriving in Los Angeles, California, he wasted no time and showed up at the front desk of the comedy store with his guitar case and suitcase in tow, telling the young man behind the desk, well, I'm here to be a comic. There he was, 18 years old, but looking even younger. He had a bowl cut and a three-piece corduroy suit. He looked like someone who'd never stepped foot on a stage before, but blew people away once he did step up on that stage. He moved into a tiny furnished studio apartment in a converted motel in Burbank. There he bought himself a black and white television for $20 and filled the space with used books from a store a few blocks away. Among other things, he bought an entire Mark Twain collection for less than a dollar. For a while, Bill would reconnect with his best friend, Dwight, who moved in with him. They wrote a screenplay that they'd been planning since they were teens called The Suburbs, and though a producer was impressed by it, he wanted them to write another script. Bill was devastated by what he considered to be a rejection, lost complete interest in writing movies, and returned to his first love, stand-up comedy, with a vengeance. It was around this time that he decided to try his hand at drugs. It has been said that only Bill Hicks would jump straight into psychedelics before trying alcohol. Well, lo and behold, it was mushrooms where he saw the most potential. His heroes, Jimi Hendrix, Keith Richards, and Richard Pryor, had all stimulated themselves with psychedelics, so it seemed like the next natural step to take. His first experience with drugs on stage was a huge success. 
He had just swallowed three mushrooms minutes before being called up on stage and barely told one joke before he began to laugh uncontrollably. His laughter as well as his presence under the influence was infectious and soon the audience was laughing with him. He could say anything and the audience would fall down laughing. He thought he had struck comedy gold. However, he had yet to experience the nastier side of the psychedelic drug, namely the paranoia. The next time he swallowed a few mushrooms before hitting the stage, the result was drastically different. The audience wasn't buying his act, and midway into his set, he was curled up in the fetal position by the corner of the stage. The audience threw coasters at him. But having had a taste of drugs, he wanted to keep trying different substances, all of them if possible. He had realized that drugs were a fast way into transcendence, and he wanted to see what heights he could reach. Next on the list was alcohol. What's a good drink? He asked a fellow comedian a few hours before a show. He was told that margaritas were a drink that many people liked. He then went to the bar, ordered seven margaritas, and threw them back, one after the other. After that, he went straight to tequila shots. A few hours later, he was standing on the edge of the stage, glaring at his audience, brooding with contempt for them and their worldviews. Alcohol brought out bitterness and anger from within him, and though it changed the dynamic between he and his audience, he liked how it allowed him to say exactly whatever he wanted to without giving it a second thought. Booze, he thought, liberated him. Alcohol was followed by cigarettes and more drugs, which soon led to him living a party life that mirrored rock stars. One of his favorite lines during this time was, Every time I party too hard, I remember Keith Richards is still alive. Hicks was in a downward spiral of alcohol and drugs for a good while. Despite this, his career continued to rise. At 22 years old, he was the first of the Houston comedians to do Late Night with David Letterman. This bumped his club price up to $1,000 a week. However, he was having trouble getting booked. His outrageous behavior, fueled by copious amounts of alcohol, got around in the comedy club circuit. Many became very wary of booking the genius comedian who would destroy things in the parking lot or throw shot glasses from the roof after the show. But what had become more of a staple than his instability was his act. Bill's routine about how we live in a world where good men are killed and mediocre hacks thrive, didn't always go over well with audiences. It also didn't help that he simply did not care if people laughed or not. He was on a different agenda, one that would later solidify him as a legend, but at the same time would make his comedy life more complicated. To the average person just looking to have a fun night out at a comedy club, Hicks was not their cup of tea. Nevertheless, his originality and delivery kept him afloat and he had his second appearance on Letterman on February 13, 1986. NBC had rules about what could and could not be said or joked about on their shows. 
The first time around, Hicks played ball and censored his routine to work with NBC's guidelines. But on the second appearance, whether an honest mistake according to him or a blatant disregard for the rules, he went beyond what was tolerated. He had been forbidden to do a televangelist bit, but did so anyway. After the bit, he was chewed out by the producer. He argued that he didn't understand why it was such a big deal. It was just a joke, and besides, everyone knew that televangelists were full of it. He had no intention of ruining his career on national television, but had simply misunderstood the guidelines, he told the producer. His routine was televised, although censored and edited, and he would walk away from 30 Rockefeller Center knowing that he wouldn't be invited back anytime soon. New Year's Day 1988, he hit rock bottom when it came to alcohol and drug abuse. That day he woke up in a panic. His girlfriend wasn't next to him on her side of the bed. He could remember that they'd gone out with friends and that he drank heavily all through the night. When their friends left, however, he'd gone into one of his rages. There was no fight, but he did go stomping around angrily and yelling. The night culminated with he and his girlfriend standing on the balcony against the railings, and he was threatening to throw her off the balcony. He couldn't remember anything after that. Either his girlfriend was on the sidewalk 22 floors below, or she had gotten away from him. Not seeing her on the sidewalk below, he would finally exhale in relief when she picked up the phone after he called her. He told her that he was disgusted with himself and was never drinking again. She told him that that was great, but they were finished. After some initial hiccups, he did manage to do as he promised, kicking the sauce and the drugs. However, the cigarettes remained. On stage, cigarettes would become a prop for him, and many of his jokes revolved around smoking. He would manage to reunite with his girlfriend, and together they moved to New York. He saw a future there, and also hoped he would get another chance to perform on Late Night with David Letterman. Arriving in New York, he found it easy to book gigs and found plenty of inspiration for new jokes in the Big Apple and would write constantly. He was shocked by the homelessness in the city and would write about it. He remained sober and would never leave the apartment without stuffing his pockets with spare change to hand out to homeless people. I could have been a bum, he would say. All it takes is the right girl, the right bar, and the right friends, man. He was soon offered to appear in a stand-up special. It would be called Comedy's Dirtiest Dozen and would showcase 12 of Comedy's raunchiest comedians, including Chris Rock and Tim Allen. Hicks accepted the offer and would do a routine that would push his show to a new level. He had quit using drugs, but hadn't forgotten the insight and self-reflection that drugs, in particular psychedelics, had given him. The routine in the movie included the now almost infamous LSD story. Now please forgive my lack of comedic timing and impersonation skills, but here we go. Always that same LSD story. You've all seen it. Hicks would begin. Young man on acid, thought he could fly, jumped out of a building. What a tragedy. 
He would then shift, asking, How about a positive LSD story? Wouldn't that be newsworthy? Just the once? To base your decision on information rather than scare tactics and superstition and lies? I think it would be newsworthy. Today, a young man on acid realized that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration, that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. There is no such thing as death. Life is only a dream and we're the imagination of ourselves. Here's Tom with the weather. <laughs> well, hopefully I landed that one. If not, it's pretty easy to find. Three and a half years after his second Letterman appearance, Bill Hicks was invited back. His act was much easier to digest this time around. Actually, it was considered a success, but it did not come without compromise. He understood that outrageous was cute, while authentic outrage was forbidden. What would follow were nine additional appearances. He would, however, leave late night on a sour note as his final and twelfth appearance on October 1st, 1993, was cut from the transmitted program. Quote, This is where we are at right now, as a whole. No one is left out of the loop. We are experiencing a reality based on a thin veneer of lies and illusions. A world where greed is our god and wisdom is sin where division is key and unity is fantasy, where the ego-driven cleverness of the mind is praised rather than the intelligence of the heart. End quote. England had embraced his comedy stylings in a grander way than the U.S., which is why he chose the Dominion Theatre in London for his 1993 special. Hicks considered comedy in the U.S. to be gutted, it had all been commercialized. It didn't offer point of views, but only the same regurgitated jokes in order to keep the status quo in check. He even contemplated moving to the UK for a while. As soon as he stepped onto the stage at Dominion, it was obvious that he was a different creature than most of the comedians who previously performed there. He didn't rush through his set trying to get a laugh every 12 seconds. Rather, he took his time reflected, and, as was his style, went off on tangents if the mood so struck him. The fifth of his twelve principles of comedy was, you're not married to any of this shit. If something happens, taking you off on a tangent, never go back and finish a bit. Just move on. And it was one he took to heart on that evening. During the one hour and fifteen minute special, he would go through how he felt about quitting cigarettes, about the Bush administration, his own political stance, and about the JFK assassination, among other controversial topics. Ultimately, he would push the limits with his goat boy routine, seemingly losing some of his audience as he went through the piece, but brought the whole act together and elevated himself into legendary status with his final speech, Just a Ride. It was not the first time he'd made the speech, but it would be the performance that would solidify his legend, especially considering what would come soon thereafter. Quote, You know, I don't think mass murder is funny at all. Probably the opposite. But I just have this weird theory. The best kind of comedy to me is when you make people laugh at things they've never laughed at. 
and also take a light into the darkened corners of people's minds, exposing them to the light. I thought the whole point of it was to make you feel unalone. Many thoughts I do have are not my own thoughts. You know what I mean? They're not secret thoughts. End quote. The special was aired on HBO on Tuesday, September 14, 1993, to strong reviews. The New York Times called Bill very much one of Lenny Bruce's children. It is still revered and adored by fans across the globe and often seen as one of his finest moments. Before the special hit the air in the U.S., unfortunately, he received some very bad news. The news came on a Thursday, June 17, 1993, while he was suffering from a severe pain on the side of his stomach. He had been struggling with the pain for a while, but it was becoming unbearable at this point. He was admitted into the hospital, which did come as a welcome relief from the never-ending wave of shows. After undergoing a series of medical examinations, it was on Sunday, June 20th of 1993, that the doctors gave Bill Hicks the terrible news that he had late-stage pancreatic cancer, which had also spread to his liver. He shifted around in his white bedsheets, squirming, trying to absorb what he was being told. After the news had settled in, he immediately began with chemotherapy. Unfortunately, it was much too late. Hicks performed what would be the final show of his career at Caroline's in New York on January 6, 1994. Afterwards, he moved in with his parents in Little Rock, Arkansas. During his final weeks on Earth, he reread J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and made telephone calls to friends to say goodbye before he took a vow of silence on February 14th. Twelve days later, on February 26th of 1994, the effects of pancreatic cancer took his life. He was 32 years old. He was laid to rest in the family grave plot in Magnolia Cemetery in Leakesville, Mississippi. Bill Hicks was called a comedian's comedian, and for good reason. He didn't care about being someone he wasn't. He was himself, for better or worse and his stage persona was merely an intensified version of himself. He would tell you facts, or yell them. His aim was to enlighten his audience with knowledge, but also make them laugh throughout the set. He exposed himself on stage as if you were friends who had known each other for years. A friend he was not afraid to offend. Nothing was too far, nothing was off topic, and nothing was taboo. He made it personal, and therefore the impression he left is all the more resonant. In early 1995, his family released a brief essay that Hicks had written a week prior to his death. So, as usual, I will literally leave you with one last word from the king of the Texas outlaw comedians. I was born William Melvin Hicks on December 16, 1961, in Valdosta, Georgia. Ah, 
Melvin Hicks from Georgia. Yeehaw! I already had gotten off to life on the wrong foot. I was always awake, I guess you'd say. Some part of me clamoring for new insights and new ways to make the world a better place. All of this came out years down the line, in my multitude of creative interests that are the tools I now bring to the party. Writing, acting, music, comedy, a deep love of literature and books. Thank God for all the artists who've helped me. I'd read these words and off I went, dreaming my own imaginative dreams, exercising them at will, eventually to form bands, comedy, more bands, movies, anything creative. This is the coin of the realm I use in my words, vision. On June 16, 1993, I was diagnosed with having liver cancer that had spread from the pancreas, one of life's weirdest and worst jokes imaginable. I'd been making such progress recently in my attitude, my career, and realizing my dreams that it just stood me on my head for a while. Why me? I would cry out, and why now? Well, I know now there may never be any answers to those particular questions, but maybe in telling a little about myself, we can find some other answers to other questions. That might help our way down our own particular paths towards realizing my dream of new hope and new happiness. Amen. I left in love, in laughter, and in truth, and wherever truth, love, and laughter abide, I am there in spirit. Thank you for the ride, William Melvin Hicks. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep the laughter alive and keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Lemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden.